I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And we all like to feel some dignity, but one unfortunate aspect of 21st century capitalism is all its pervasive, head down, nose to the grindstone, relentless focus on today's bottom line. But the reality is that short term thinking all too often yields unforeseen, harsh economic times. The old saying that You can't know where you're going if you don't know where you've been. Maybe old, but it's demonstrably true. Today in education, K-12, through as well as in colleges and universities, STEM education, that is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, STEM education has become nearly totally dominant. The consensus is, well, that's where the jobs are. Of this trend, our guest Knut Mossback Berger of Booming Seattle writes, Higher Ed, it seems, is becoming the new vocational technical school, which is all well and good, but it ain't enough. And if one were to consider history, one could not help but see that short-term thinking always leads to avoidable, often serious problems. What is happening to history education? Does history education have a future? Well, there's bad news and good news, actually. The bad news is, as Berger says, history and historians, if you haven't noticed, are facing an existential crisis. The good news is that with the huge success of the hip-hop hit play Hamilton on Broadway and the increased interest in civics education in the wake of the disregard and flat-out rejection of constitutional understanding by the Trump administration, interesting civics and the possible survival of democracy is slowly on the rise, and history is an essential aspect of that. Dude Mosbach Berger, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. The article you wrote asks and answers the question, why we need history majors to understand our future. Knut Mosbach Berger is a senior writer and columnist at Crosscut, and host of Mossback's Northwest TV series on KCTS Channel 9. Let me first ask, what what is CrossCut? Not everybody is familiar with that. Yeah, CrossCut is a 12-year-old public journalism uh, nonprofit. Uh, We started out as uh, uh, basically an online daily newspaper of Northwest Seattle-focused news, politics, and culture. And a few years ago, we merged with a local public television station, KCTS 9, to create uh, Cascade Public Media. So, uh, and uh, yeah, so we're nonprofit public interest uh, journalism trying to fill the gap that (laughs) the the loss of daily newspapers and the decline of uh, the television station staffs and newsrooms. Um, Yeah, so that's that's what we're about. 
I'd love to see that. The gap. I'd love to see that territory sometime. I have yet to go there. Well, Berger writes about politics and regional heritage, and he previously served as editor in chief of Seattle Weekly, editor and publisher of Eastside Week, and as managing editor of Washington Magazine. He's editor at large for Seattle Magazine and has written two books. Pujitopolis, I like that name, and Space Needle, Spirit of Seattle. He's a regular commentator on KUOW-FM and a Rainier Club Fellow. And you can find him on Twitter at, at Canute Berger. Well, it seemed, thanks so much again for being with us. It seems your article was sparked by your time at the annual conference of the Organization of American Historians in Philadelphia. What is that? And please tell us about the mood at that conference. Well, this is my first time attending this uh, annual conference. Uh, the Organization of American Historians is kind of just what it says. It represents academic historians, uh, but also uh, lay historians, journalists, high school teachers, uh, community college teachers, people who are professional historians and working in historic preservation and other areas. And they get together for an annual conference in, in different cities. It happened to be in Philadelphia. And uh, you know, I write local history, and I wanted to get a better sense of what some of the trends were in um, uh, writing about history and, uh, you know, some of the areas that are being, you know, reconsidered nationally uh, uh-huh. uh, for you know, one example being, sure. I learned that um, uh, there's a, a lot of focus now on things like reconstructed uh, reconstruction. Uh-huh. Uh, we're at 150th anniversary of reconstruction. We're in the middle of that, relooking at that, uh, looking at mass incarceration. There, you know, mm. various subject areas that have emerged recently, and so it was just a just a way to get a flavor of like what's what's happening in the world of historians and history. Well, we need to learn about such things as reconstruction and mass incarceration because they're still afflicting us to this day. What was the mood there like? Could you get a sense of of the mood? Yeah, well, my takeaway from it um, was that there was a, an underlying. I mean, these, these folks are passionate, smart. Uh, the presentations were really interesting. There were a lot on uh, journalism and the his- history of journalism and, the, and looking at the kind of contemporary context. But also one of the underlying themes, I think, was a uh, nervousness uh, about uh, the future of academic history in particular. Um, the number of people uh, getting history degrees is way, way down, especially since the Great Recession uh, it's down about 33, 34%. Um, here in Seattle at the University of Washington, history majors are down uh, 46% since 2008. Liberal arts and humanities majors in general are way down. And as universities are cutting back or they're uh, responding to a growing demand for STEM education, um, you know, tenure jobs are disappearing. Uh, there are a lot of budget cutbacks. The remaining faculty are having to teach, uh, you know, a, a larger groups of students with fewer resources. Yes, there was an overall sense that history is kind of struggling, is certainly in the academy, to maintain uh, a central importance to the curriculum. 
that is concerning for sure. And I'll tell you, prepping for this show today reminded me that I had been accepted at the University of Oregon, not too far from your state, to go for a master's in history back in 1973. But I remember at the time reading an article in the New York Times about the difficulty historians with PhDs were having getting jobs, and I decided not to go. <laughs> Yet my passion for history has remained, as anybody who listens to the show knows, and actually grown, in part as a result of being elected to my state's Senate for many terms. And just as in baseball, they say you can't tell the players without a scorecard, without a knowledge of what went before the historical context Lawmaking is hampered in its effectiveness. And now what you call a stampede for STEM education is on. Why is STEM not sufficient for our future, do you think, Knut? Well, you know, the, of course, the future is is unknown, and we've had STEM stampedes before, uh, the main one being the post-Sputnik <laughs> boom right, in sure. science education. Yes, uh, this was a way to win the Cold War, and and now uh, there's a tremendous emphasis. Much of that is positive. Uh, you know, the, the STEM world needs greater diversity. There's a lot more outreach. And it's, it's following where the perception is that there are um, going to be a, a lot more jobs in the in uh, technology and scientific fields and engineering. And, and uh, but, you know, I think part of the problem is that people are being scared or pushed by their parents to make a financial decision, um, you know, that, that STEM is the only way you're going to be able to make a living in the future. I don't think that's true. And, um, but uh, and and even if you do make a living there, you're not necessarily going to make uh, a better living mm-hmm. than somebody who got a <clears throat> liberal arts education. And there's some t- t- statistics that show that uh, liberal arts graduates do as well or better than uh, many people in STEM, mm-hmm. uh, so-called STEM jobs. Oh. I think the history is important because uh, it's. <laughs> I mean, it's. It's important not just to know kind of where we're going, but to know who we are and where we came from. And I think, uh, you know, historians ask questions. It's not that different from science in the sense that you dig out facts, you ask questions, uh, you try to find out, um, you know, answer those questions. You put together a, a theory of history or a a sense of story that gives context to, to that information, uh, and then people can um, hopefully learn from that and, and decide. And I think you're right about politics. I mean, it has a tremendous bearing on legislation, on, uh, you know, take the whole argument about whether to impeach uh, President Trump or not, you can't really make those decisions in a complete vacuum True. without understanding what are the historical precedents for impeachment. Uh, who, who have we impeached previously? How have we done that? We rely on history to inform us uh, how to behave, uh, what is precedent, what is unprecedented. These things are important to our decisions, and that, that plays out in all kinds of of fields. You, you reminded me that, that there are, of course, climate change deniers today, science deniers who rely on myth. And, you know, if you don't have that science 
<laughs> you're at a severe disadvantage. And as you're saying, there is a science to history, learning what's there, what works, what doesn't work. Fascinating. If, if you just tuned in, Burke Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is uh, Knut Berger, whom we're talking about an article he's written, Why We Need History Majors to Understand Our Future. You were about to say... Oh, yeah, just about the uh, one of the kind of unique things about my uh, journalistic position is uh, I'm a, a <laughs> like you, I was fascinated by history as a young person. Uh, even before I could write, I drew stick figure uh, books uh, showing the uh, battles of the Civil War. And, and uh, you know, I was just a history obsessed kid, uh, studied it in college. And, and uh, but I've married it with journalism because uh, one of the things I found in in uh, doing local journalism in in uh, Seattle is that a lot of people are new to the area. They don't really know the history, and and ah, many of those yeah. of us who live here don't know the history. And I would get sure. questions like, um, you know, gee, how come there are neo Nazis in the North Pacific Northwest? Uh, that seems to be at odds with who we are. And, you know, you go back and look at the history, and you find threads of history that make sense of that. Uh, there are neo-Nazis here because there have always been white supremacists here and people with a secessionist, uh, you know, bend in in their politics. And, uh, you know, this is part of who we are. This is an alien to who we are. Oh. And uh, so I think history often helps explain the present uh, and give you a shed uh, a new light on it. You got to know what's real and what's not. Absolutely. And just to believe myth doesn't cut it. You know, and of course, politics is behind many of these decisions regarding syllabus in schools. I remember when America had a large and thriving middle class. There really was one, actually. Education, <laughs> including history and social sciences back then, could be valued as really essential components of a democratic culture. Now there's there's no middle class. And as you say, parents today want a return on investment. How do you convince parents that a degree in history might prove useful to their children? Perhaps it's a good time to mention Steve Jobs, who did rather well in terms of making money. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly been all kinds of uh, examples of people, certainly in, in high tech, who uh, never graduated from college, who <laughs> uh, or who uh, were liberal arts uh, students. Yes, Steve Jobs is is uh, you know one of the prime examples. I interviewed for my column a history professor at the University of Washington, Margaret O'Mara, who has written a new uh, history of uh, the Silicon Valley that's going to be coming out this July. She has a foot in both worlds. She studied the tech world and the history, and, and she was pointing out, you know, Steve Jobs is considered the, probably the greatest single, you know, innovator in Silicon Valley. And, you know, he went to Reed College, a liberal kind of, you know, had a reputation as a hippie school, um, you know, studied liberal arts, uh, yet he understood people, design, marketing, um, he had a he had a knack. He was able to work with other people uh, to get the technical part. But Apple's success is largely based on its user friendliness. He credited uh, inspiration derived from taking a calligraphy class, 
it was a drop-in calligraphy class too. Oh. I don't think he even registered for it. Um, so I think that there are um, examples of people who've had a tremendous influence um, on the on the STEM side of things, but who've done it with a liberal arts uh, background. Interesting. And if you look at uh, uh, politics. You know, it's important to see what works and what doesn't. It's obviously not just policy and positions on issues, but marketing. You can learn that from history. What connects, what doesn't connect. You got to connect if you want to win. And if you don't know what has connected in the past and inspired people in the past, that's a, uh, you know, an impediment to, to getting your agenda into gear now. And go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I mean, it also can get you into trouble if you don't know. I mean, the, the most recent example being Nike having a new tennis shoe campaign with the tagline, Lost Cause. And, you know, this, this they're trying to sell tennis shoes using a, 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 basically a, a slogan used by white supremacists to, to uh, voice nostalgia for the times of the Confederacy. And... Any history major, uh, you know, if they had been in that room when that decision was made <laughs> with the ad agency, you know, would have been able to raise their hand and say, hey, maybe that's not a great tagline. <laughs> and, uh, you know, historians went nuts on Twitter and they quickly canceled the campaign. And, and uh, you know, so if you are, uh, you know, running uh, modern companies and and uh, marketing people and that kind of thing, you have to understand the cultural context yes. of the kinds of of uh, ad campaigns and other um, things that you're doing, and and do it with knowledge. I mean, in this case, I think they were just completely ignorant of the phrase and what its meaning was. Ignorance, yeah. There's a fair amount of that, unfortunately, and uh, well, from my point of view, there's there are people who seem to actually value ignorance as much as education seriously i mean it's it's i never would have thought such a thing but 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 people think it, ignorance is just as valuable as education and it you know causes a lot of trouble from that and looking at the future you note that quote the rise of robotics and artificial intelligence will replace many human jobs in the near future end of quote no question about that well, why isn't STEM education all that is needed? How can a knowledge of history be valuable in this coming technologically dominated world of robotics and artificial intelligence? Well, I think that um, we're already seeing that with um, uh, the need for humans to be part of the process. And we've already discussed you know, things like creative thinking, marketing, managing communications, um, uh, you know, people just with uh, uh, general perspective, but also the creations do require some kind of uh, human oversight. I think there are many things that uh, robotics and AI won't be able to do, certainly in the short term. So they, you may find that things like computer programmers and lab technicians and others will be quickly replaced by artificial intelligence but who's going to check the algorithms for racial bias? Uh, you know, you, you need, if you look at the kinds of things Facebook is, is up to, it's the, it's the, you know, the need for human supervision and, the, and perspective and wisdom, um, you know, is essential in all these things. 
and uh, a liberal arts education in the classic sense, liberal being, you know, broad-minded, open, free education. Um, you know, these are the kinds of uh, schooling that can train people to do things that AI cannot do, at least in the short term, and uh, and are very needed in the business and political world. Yes, they are. And again, in politics, you write that the history profession itself is being remade in positive ways, ones that may appear, uh, appeal rather, ones that may appeal to younger people in the long run. In a time of Donald Trump, historians are increasingly being sought out. Well, that's really interesting. I'm reminded that the best, most effective organizer of the anti-Vietnam War movement in the late 60s, early 70s was none other than Richard Nixon. There's nothing like adversity to organize. Please talk about the effect of Trump and revival of interest in students becoming history majors. In what ways do, as you say, our precedent-stomping times need explanation and perspective? Say more about that, please. Well, I think that um, there are a couple things going on there. One is that um, history as as academia gets squeezed and the case for history itself needs to be made by historians, um, they are getting out of the ivory tower. They are um, getting they're getting their books on popular and big topics into print with traditional trade publishers as opposed to academic publishers. Ah. Um, it's becoming a less insular world, and historians. In the book world, certainly, um, are are becoming very popular. Popular history is selling well, and these are books that range from. Uh, I, I cited a couple in my column. Uh, Eric Larson, Seattle writer, who wrote the book "Devil in the White City," huge success um, that turned a lot of heads in, in the trade publishing world. You have. Uh, books, uh, Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, which, you know, literally has helped kind of reframe the debate on mass incarceration. Um, and and then, you, as you mentioned earlier, Ron Chernow's biography of Alexander Hamilton uh, became, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda's right. hip-hop musical hit. Huge. And I saw him you know, him speak, uh, well, I saw it online, but mm -hmm. I, I watched his whole speech at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and he made this, you know, told this the history um, of the relationship between the founders and the presidents over time and the press, and it was extremely interesting, and in doing so, he was able to underline uh, the Trump administration and, and what an outlier it is in terms of its relationship with the press. Not that the press has been kind uh, to, uh, you know, only a few people. I mean, it's everybody's had difficulty, including George Washington, <laughs> with, the, oh, with yeah. the press, but oh, he was absolutely. able to put that in some historical context. The other thing is that um, I think as precedents are broken, it's historians who are raising their hands and saying, "Hey, this is a this is a, a precedent that's being broken. We need to talk about it. Nobody's ever done this before," and um, and so you're seeing on cable television, historians are being called upon increasingly to uh, comment. 
uh, write op-eds. And they're not being punished academically for doing so. You know, in, in the traditional historian circles, to be popular was right. uh, to be wrong, <laughs> oh, <I know. laughs> to, to discredit your tenure track. Well, it, you know, having there's that old saying, uh, nature abhors a vacuum. And, you know, there's been such disregard for history. What was that? I forget which book that was uh, where somebody said history is bunk. Maybe I think that might have been Henry Ford, actually, who said that history is bunk and just people ignoring it. But the fact that, I mean, there's like this real interest in it now. It's like newly popular, these books, as you mentioned. What was that one, White City? Devil in the White City. Which yeah, what's is that about? about? The Chicago. Oh, yeah. Well, it's about the World Columbian Exposition of 1893, right. the the Chicago World's Fair. Uh, and so it's a kind of a social history of this World's Fair, architectural history and whatnot. But it's woven in with the story of a serial killer <laughs> who was operating during this uh, fair. And so you had this interesting layering of of building the, quote, white city, which was the kind of ideal of urban planning. and And it's popularizing this idea which influenced the development of cities all over America in the early 19th uh, early 20th century and at the same time this incredible shadow that was being cast by you know a guy who was uh, knocking off the guests to the fair in his in his uh, basement you know I'll have to so add that it to was a, it, to my yeah, reading list. Book, by the way. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Well, yeah. and then there are a lot of books where they mix in, you know, uh, fictional people to tell real stories. Uh, Edward uh, Rutherford has done that with the books about New York and Paris and London, and it's they're great, great things. But you know, it, it's interesting as you mentioned within the pro- professional academic historian community, uh, they used to look down their noses at popularizing history, writing for the masses. And I think specifically of Barbara Tuchman, whom I really ad- admire tremendously. She wrote some really good books about the Middle Ages, about the uh, First World War, and a lot of different mm-hmm. books. And she wrote very popular history books. I think it was in the 80s. I'm not sure. But the fact that they were written for a large audience seemed to invite academic scorn. Is that still the case now among more orthodox academic historians? Well, what I'm being told is that's changing. Um, And uh, one of the things I think that's interesting is you're seeing a lot of a lot of history is is now involving aspects of popular culture. So you're finding, uh, you know, I, I went to a presentation at this conference where um, somebody was working on the history of Sesame Street. And it's really fascinating because you go back in the 1960s and 70s, this is history now. Um, you know, things that are 40 or 50 years ago are history. And so you're finding, uh, in some cases, uh, links between what academic historians are doing and popular culture in a way that maybe you didn't find during the era when, you know, historians were simply writing about you know, Garibaldi's use of artillery and, <laughs> right. you know, or some very obscure topics. So I think some of it has been that, that history is, uh, even within academia, has become more expansive. I think it's also becoming more responsive to other, you know, social, uh, social trends. Uh-huh. We mentioned, you know, particularly African-American history. I, I attended a, 
uh, unit where the National Park Service was talking about ways in which it had marginalized African Americans in some of its national park uh, and historic park properties. And they were, you know, they were fessing up to having made decisions in the 1940s and 50s that they were now regretting and trying to redress. And so I think there's a way that um, uh, active public debates, whether it's, you know, over Confederate statues or uh-huh. whatnot, are sort of legitimizing some of these areas where history and contemporary issues and politics overlap. Yeah, interesting. And and I'm just about done with the book now uh, about uh, leaving the end of the myth, it's called. And it's it's about the wall, Trump's wall. There's a lot of history behind the idea of a wall. I mean, it's, you know, of course, incredibly racist and, and uh, white supremacist history. But it's important to learn that stuff. The wall is not a brand new idea at all. In fact, there are very few really brand new ideas. I mean, for example, I bet very few people knew that socialized medicine was a really popular idea in the late 1940s coming. It was it, it was very consistent with what Franklin Roosevelt, a very popular president, was doing. Uh, and Harry Truman was proposing that. But in 1948, and there was a poll done that 75 percent of Americans supported what was then called socialized medicine. But the problem was the Southern Democratic senators, who were rather openly racist, were uh, ratcheted up fear of blood of black people mixing with white people in public hospitals. And so that killed it. That killed it. It's important to learn that stuff. Wow, that is really interesting. I, yeah, I did not know that, but it, I'm not surprised. Right. By it, that, that is fascinating. There's, there's so much in history that, that still affects us now. And for a long time, as you know, students have complained that they're just not turned on by history. It's always kind of baffled me because I've always liked it. But how have students perceived the teaching of history in schools in the past, like through the you know, middle and late 20th century? And how, what has been the effect of that? And do you think teachers are getting it, somehow learning why kids have not been turned on by history? Are te- uh, history teachers starting to adapt their teaching style? Your thoughts on that? Why have kids been turned off to history? Yeah. Well, I I think that, um, you know, part of it is that a lot of children uh, don't see themselves in history, the, the relevance of it. I remember, now I was fascinated by history from a very early age. It was my favorite subject all the way through school. I probably didn't have a good history teacher until my senior year of high school, Um and, uh, but, you know, I persisted, but, you know, the, the memorization of dates and places, the repetition of incomplete, inaccurate, or mytho- mythological, <laughs> uh, history, uh, you know, the pilgrims and the kind of founding story. Seattle has a, a story of its founders landing in the winter at Alki Point to found, found Seattle being helped by the friendly Indians. That's essentially the Pilgrim story, just retold in yeah. a in a in a Northwest rainy uh, cedar tree forest, um, and uh, you know, and and of course, you know, children of immigrants 
children of color, um, you know, a lot of people don't see themselves in those histories because a lot of the traditional history is is so oriented toward the white European settlement of the West and and uh, that kind of thing. And so, and I found the most powerful. I had a wonderful high school history teacher in my senior year, and one of the things that he did was. I was also intensely interested in politics. This would be in the, you know, early 70s, late 60s. I was draft age. I was, you know, <clears throat> opposed to the Vietnam War and the draft. And he would give me history assignments that had ties to things I was interested in. And so I remember him coming to me and saying, uh, you know, Berger, I want you to do me a 10-page paper on the history of the 1863 draft riots in New York. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and so he would send me, and here I was, uh, an anti-draft, anti-war activist, and then uh, I had to go out and do a history on what was happening in 1863 during the Civil War. Yeah. And, you know, I think teachers are getting better at, uh, making ties to people's uh, lives. But they're swimming upstream because <laughs> history is not necessarily a required course. Mm. Uh, or, or you know, in, in, the, in the K-12, you know, education, and certainly local history is marginalized. So that um, I don't think it's a matter of, in many cases, of them not teaching history well. They're not teaching it at all. Whoa, that's pretty frightening, I must say. And you're reminding me, I think it was junior high school. I happened to go to a very good school system, Newton, Massachusetts. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I remember a teacher talking to us about people our age in the uh, ancient Greek culture and in uh, mm-hmm. uh, actually the Seattle area of Washington, some old uh, uh, indigenous cultures there, the place of, of young people. And like, oh, yeah, we could relate to that. And the whole thing about, you know, I've asked kids, why aren't you interested in history? They don't care about names and dates. And the whole great men teaching of history was so dominant for so long. It's it's just yeah. appalling. And I like to think that if young people find out amazing little-known history, like the anti-draft riots of 1863. How many people know about that? Very few, I think, and and what that was about. And it's very, very illuminating about where we are now. And where we are now is on Keeping Democracy Live with Bert Cohen and our guest, uh, uh, Knut Berger, who's a senior writer and columnist at Crosscut, which you can look at on the Internet thing. And he's written about why we need history majors to understand our future. And we are, are doing that. And, you know, just looking at uh, the, the place of teachers and professors, you say they're breaking out of the academic press and getting more attention from the commercial trade press. How has that come about, do you think, Knut? Well, I think in the, in the, in the trade press, you know, you have a, f- a few hit books. <laughs> and if you know, and, and as you say, authors like Barbara Tuckman, or uh, you know, the books like *The Devil in the White City* that that unexpectedly do well, and uh, the, you know, the publishing in, 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 uh, industry wants to you know replicate that, <laughs> replicate yeah. that success. So part of it's that the public is is interested in it, demanding it. 
Um, and uh, the, the the publishers, I mean, I, I attended a panel at this conference that had, you know, a couple of Pulitzer Prize winners on it, a National Book Award winner, people talking, uh, and an editor from um, one of the top uh, trade publishers. And, uh, you know, they're printing... Uh, you know, maybe this particular publisher was printing maybe, uh, you know, a book a month, maybe a dozen history books a year and talking about the criteria that they're looking for. And and what they're looking for and what they're finding with many of these writers, uh, both professional historians and, and journalists turned historians, is uh, they want some relevance to current life. They want a compelling narrative. So you have to have those elements. But they're also looking for history that might break new ground in some way, that might mm. open up a topic that hasn't uh, been explored before. Um, so I think uh, they're, you know, being very much inviting uh, historians. Now, it's a, it's a small percentage, relatively, of historians who can write for a, a mass popular audience. Oh, and true. both, you know, yeah. the Ron Chernow's don't grow on trees. Um <laughs> But it it um, you know it is getting them these broader audiences that whereas before it would be a university press or something that would that would publish these books. Well, that the profit motive has been known to uh, stimulate various different things through the years. Yes, exactly. Uh, if, if 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 it sells, they're interested. And I I, I sense that there's you know a, there's been a kind of a boom with the election of Trump. Uh, an interest in uh, learning about what the heck is going on, what precedents have there been before? You know, people are, I imagine, reading more, and there's more of an interest in uh, in the whole Watergate uh, situation because then we had a uh, a very uh, amateur liar, shall we say? <laughs> but uh, you know, he seemed to respect eventually the the rule of law, and his attorney general was arrested. It did happen, and I think people might be might be interested in, in that. And uh, speaking of, of, of Trump, we have Trump's amazing disdain for facts and truth uh, to thank for, as you know, history is selling to an eager audience. There's been a hunger. It seems to have built up. And I remember my dad talking about the, when I was growing up, there was no civics education, none at all. And, and you know, he was uh, like, why isn't that? There's a hunger for civics education now. What the heck is government? Because it's been the powers that be have convinced us for so long that uh, we don't have any power. You might just give up. We're powerless and, and don't even try about it. Are, are there specific topics? You mentioned a couple that are specifically uh, hot these days in, in, uh, in terms of history and articles and uh, books as, as, as well as that. And are, any other specific topics that are especially hot these days? Well, you know, you can uh, see that one of the topics post-Trump was trying to explain why Trump, and not only in terms of election interference or that kind of thing, but also what's going on in America that somebody like Donald Trump could, could get elected, who voted for him. And so you have people going out and looking at rural cultures or looking at uh, the Rust Belt class you know, changes and shifts and demographic shifts in America, economic history, 
um, to help explain a political phenomenon that took many, uh, both in the public and in the press, uh, by surprise. Uh, And I know, like with Crosscut, our own um, enterprise here, we operate and live in a very progressive, liberal city, a big blue bubble, we call it, and and uh, sounds lovely. We made a de- we made a decision to send uh, people like myself outside of the bubble to other parts of the Northwest to find out, um, uh, you know, what what made pe- what makes people tick in rural areas that see the world so differently. And uh, I did a trip across the state with a photographer, where you know I was talking with ranchers and orchardists and and uh, farmers and other people. And, you know, history infuses uh, people's perspective on the world. Um, uh, people who have lived for multiple generations on a particular farm and and have a sense of self-sufficiency and a sense of their homogeneous community uh, supporting what they, uh-huh. what they can accomplish. Um, and so I think that one of the one of the trends has been, gee, who the heck are we as Americans, right. and uh, how did we get to this point? And of course, I think one of the things that you discover in that context, and this is where you're seeing books on race and books on the wall or books on these um, divides, is is that they have been around for a long time. That they didn't happen by accident. That the Pacific Northwest is one of the whitest places in America, and there's a reason for it. It was done by design, not by accident, and uh, and that that kind of those kinds of settlement patterns have reinforced certain attitudes that are now uh, asserting themselves. Um, and uh, so, I think books that. Uh, biographies and other books that explain these things. And as I mentioned previously, uh, you know, I was told that uh, books on on uh, race and Reconstruction reconsidered and mass incarceration um, are topics that have been doing very well in the public uh, sphere and, you know, have, uh, uh, you know, an opportunity to impact uh, policy. Um, we certainly are lo- re-looking at the Civil War. I mean, we're always, yeah. I think they pu- still publish more books about Abraham Lincoln every year than just about anything else. Mm. Um, but now we're actively reconsidering the legacy of the Civil War and what did it mean, and, and did we did we um, pursue Jim Crow by other means in the post-Jim Crow era? Um, these are These are things that, um, I think there's an eager audience. Um, we're bringing more people into history in terms of race and class than have been brought into it before, where it's a, sequ- a sequence of guys on the money or Mount Rushmore that we talked about. Mm. Uh, of course, I, I love history books and can recommend so many. But, you know, it is, it's it's great to see it kind of opening up a new market, you know, like uh, uh, voter suppression we see. But it doesn't come out of nowhere. It's just the 21st century voter suppression is really just a new version of Jim Crow, which has been around a long time. And a lot of people I know are really interested in ousting Trump in 2020. Well, 
you know, it might help to look at history, what has connected in those areas we didn't connect with in 2016. I mean, for example, we didn't carry the Midwest, Pennsylvania, and various different uh, cultures like that. But there was something called prairie populism uh, not that long ago, which very few people really know about, and connected people on the farms. Now, granted, the farms are different these days. But, for example, in I, I was speaking to a woman from Iowa, fourth-generation family farmer, and we were talking about Medicare for all, how all of a, you know, there's very few doctors and hospitals are, you know, separated by 100 miles or so. Medicare for all would help people. So many people are like, oh, no, we got to go to the center. We don't want to rock the, uh, the boat at all. But you need to, and history can show what has connected in the past and what is connecting now. And looking right at the history of racism, boy, it didn't, doesn't come from, from nowhere. And again, if you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here. The show is called Keeping Democracy Alive. And to keep democracy alive, you know, you really got to have a little understanding of history anyway. And our guest today is Knute Berger, who is a senior writer and columnist at Crosscut and host of a of Mossback's Northwest TV series. And our guest has a nickname, Mossback, apparently. <laughs> the article is called Why We Need History Majors to Understand our future. One of the things that's, that's frustrated me as a as an aging baby boomer is not learning from Vietnam. Important, rather obvious lessons like that of the American war in Vietnam have been intentionally erased. You know, they, 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 it, it seems like what they wanted us to learn is that, oh, we have to get over the Vietnam syndrome. So we went into Iraq and Afghanistan to show we're tough again. But you know, that's a lot of people died and lost limbs, and it might be nice to uh, keep people whole, I would think. The recent corporate-funded PBS series on Vietnam insisted, and it said very clearly, America went in with nothing but the best of intentions. That untruth, of course, serves the interest of the found funders of the production. What about the power over what becomes official versions of history? What you know what myths are acceptable, and, and what what about where does where does this power come from over like textbooks and and what is uh, you know acceptable history and what is not? And I wonder about the power structure there and and how that may be changing or maybe not. Your thoughts on that? Well, I think that democracy, the potential, especially in a in a in a society as as diverse. As ours uh, and the difficulty that I think we see with maintaining democracy, um, there's a fear that, uh, or there. Let me put it this way: there's a there's a sense that um, binding people together with a common story is extremely important to the function of society, and uh, I think there's a, a way that that leads to. A simplification of history and a and creating narratives that that um, might have threads of truth in them, but aren't the whole truth. But they they become effective, uh, you know, just uh, you know, in the same way it's effective to to promote unity in terms of having everybody stand for the national anthem or everybody say the pledge of allegiance or whatnot. You know that it has this uh, context. 
You know, I also believe that there are many people in the corporate world that thrive on ignorance, that want to, want people to be uh, more easily heardable and uh, less uh, <laughs> inquisitive. Um, and I think, you know, I think that uh, makes it easier to manipulate people. Now you have, as you pointed out, this trend where with certain media and uh, certainly with political rhetoric, you have a, um, you know, a, a way in which learning the lessons of history is, is deemed uh, foolish uh, because all history is a lie. We didn't land on the moon, you know, all this kind of thing. Right. I think Vietnam is one of those things where it was a colossal moral and political and human failure. Yes. Um, and did everybody involved in the war have bad intentions? No. Did, were, were, you know, to blanketly say that uh, it was nothing but good intentions is, is wrong too. patently false. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, that TV series, I thought, did a really good job of um, bringing out the intensity and, in some ways, the power of the anti-war movement. I, In watching that part of the series, I was reminded of the, the, how strong the pushback was. And it wasn't necessarily entirely effective. Right. Um, but it was uh, something that that surprised me um, in the sense of um, my own memory has tended to to kind of you know gloss over that. Um, I mean, I attended some of you know demonstrations and and protests against the war and that kind of thing. But there's a way you know when you've lived through something like that. Uh, there's a part of you that's uh, permanently affected by it. There's part of you that kind of folds it away and puts it in the attic. You know? Yeah, it's easy and to do that. I thought, I, I guess what I'm saying is I thought that it did a good job of showing that, that activism in this country is part of our tradition. It's powerful. It can be very powerful. It can be yes. very loud. It can be very violent and obnoxious. Um, but that it's, it's also, you know, a, a critical part of who we are and how we got where we are. Yes, indeed. And, you know, making noise out in the streets actually has worked. And as a great, I don't know the exact quote from FDR when he was meeting with A. Philip Randolph, the uh, the leader of the, uh, the Pullman Porters Union, an all-black uh, union working for the Pullman Porters, and, and about discrimination and integration. And the president said, yeah, I agree with you. Now go out there and make me do it. So what he meant by that is we, the people, have a responsibility to make noise. Because if you don't make noise, people are going to think, well, you're just accepting it. And th people these days have somehow been convinced that protests don't work. It doesn't matter if we make noise. But it does. It actually does. And we can uh, learn from history and learn that we do actually have power. And certainly, as you say, you know, the desire to, to have a clear identity, something that unifies us, is very strong and very 
very important, I think. And there are those who, you know, look at those who, who look at our history and criticize certain aspects of it as, oh, we hate America. That is not true. You know, it's not either, you know, just close your eyes and put blinders on and just love everything that America has done throughout its history or you hate America. No, it is not the case. It's more complex than that. I mean, Personally, you know, I love what I was taught in elementary school that, you know, we are about democracy and self-government and and things like that. And we can learn from history and not be, uh, you know, closed minded to to the realities that we can learn and that replacing uh, history with soothing myth. Boy, you know, there seems to me there's been a, a lot of that. You know, like uh, about the white settlers in the, you know, in the early and middle 20th century, white kids like me were taught that white settlement of indigenous lands was a good thing. It was progress, that history was a straight line of progress. I wonder if there's something in the nature of teaching history that the truth eventually rises and, you know, it just it comes out despite efforts to to quash it and, and to keep it down. Your thoughts on that? Well, I, you know, I experienced that very much because, uh, you know, growing up, I loved history. I learned, you know, we used to, I remember in grade school, we had a, uh, we had to memorize the names of all the conquistadors. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you know? oh. And so, Heroes, huh? and, oh, you know, and, and they were, they were, you know, we were taught these were oh, explorers, my. but, uh-huh. uh, you know, <laughs> it was, it was delivered in a very, <laughs> you know, these were, you know, uh, Pizarro, De Soto, Balboa, whatever these these right. were heroes. Right. Uh, we, we really didn't question their conquest of the quote new world, and uh, <clears throat> and you know up until you know late in high school, I didn't get much of an alternative view of things. But then I went to a college that and took history courses that purposely uh, helped turn all that on uh, on its head and began reading about Native American history and African American history and having uh, a kind of whole world. And I remember my freshman year in college being very upset that this history had been kept from me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I felt that, um, you know, this, this, was, this was really wrong. And it wasn't and and I remember reading a book about uh, Southern literature in the antebellum era, and 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 while I was you know it's never been a uh, what you would say a Southern sympathizer, I was upset that this whole brand of American literature had been kept from me, mm. um, uh, that I hadn't been exposed to it in in other classes. And so I think, you know, history has to be an ongoing thing. You learn certain things, uh, but you're never done learning. There's always something new to uh, discover. And so I think part of it is being open to different interpretations, new data, um, and, uh, you know, and processing that and not... uh, In the Chernow talk to the White House Correspondents' Dinner, he he was quoting... Uh, William Henry Seward, who apparently was in talking about the Civil War, said something to the effect of, America has just enough virtue to save itself. (laughs) That that we're a country full of flaws, but we have enough good that when push comes to shove, 
we can keep from going into the abyss and make some progress. Interesting. And and I think I I think that's a really great way to look at it. Yeah. You know, we 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 got we fought a civil war, but you know, we won and we we passed the reconstruction amendments. Uh we ended slavery. It it wasn't the end. So that little bit of virtue we have, how can we leverage that the next time and the next time? And uh, I think that's, you know, I, I consider myself very patriotic and very, um, I love this country, yes. and uh, but I do not view it as infallible. Um, and in fact, uh, I think that process of questioning our, our mythology and questioning what we think we know is a lifelong continuing process, multi-generational process that we have to keep going. And that's part of why history is so important. It is so important. And, and, you know, as you speak, I'm thinking, you know, the more we learn about history and about that virtue that Seward talked about, it makes us better citizens. It makes us better, perhaps more patriotic citizens, if we can really understand the truth, not be afraid of facing the truth, but facing history and uh, and keeping those virtues alive. Wow, very interesting uh, discussion here. The best way for people to follow uh, your work is on Twitter at Knut Berger. Is that it? Or is there, I don't know if there's a... Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's Knut Berger. That'll get, that, that you find me on Twitter. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, you bet. Keep history alive. Keep democracy alive. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. Oh, thanks so much for your interest. Thank you. A little patriotic music here. Oh, it was a name. 
lost her husband in Lebanon. She was driving back to Washington. 